Well, my name's Robin Archer and um, I'm the director of the Ralph Miliband program here at the London School of Economics. And I'd like to welcome you all to um, our third term of lectures on the theme of um, nations and borders. And as you can see, hopefully, from the flyer that you've got, we uh, try to bring a range of speakers, established scholars, um, exciting new scholars, and also activist intellectuals. And uh, you'll, you'll note that our next event is with the singer-songwriter Billy Bragg, so I recommend that to you. Um, well, it's my great pleasure to uh, introduce uh, Professor Yuli Tamir tonight. Um, Yuli came to prominence as a founder of the Peace Now movement and was a leading activist in the civil rights movement for many years. And it was through those efforts um, that she was drawn, I think, into uh, parliamentary politics as a representative and also a minister, notably a reforming education minister um, for the Labor Party um, in the Israeli parliament. But she's now a former politician and has returned to her first um, occupation or love, um, if you like. And um, Professor Tamir has a, a long um, history and a, an impressive scholarly record as a, as a thinker and a writer. Um, she took a DPhil from Oxford University. She's had a teaching post for over a decade teaching political philosophy in Tel Aviv University. She's held research posts in Princeton, in Harvard. She's been a visitor at the Central European University. And um, she's currently the president of Shenkar College, uh, a university college in, in Israel. She's also published numerous articles and books on themes on liberalism, on nationalism, on feminism, on rights, and most recently a book on education. Tonight she's going to be speaking about some of her recent attempts to think about where working class interests lie in an age of globalisation. And um, what we'll do, as, as always with our lectures, is we'll hear from uh, Professor Tamir for 45 or 50 minutes, and then we'll open the floor for questions and discussion. So I'd ask you to join me in welcoming Professor Yuli Tamir. Just to make sure how it works. Yep. OK. Um, OK, good afternoon. Uh, this talk is an attempt um, really to do what most people in the academic world don't do, uh, is actually answer the question I was asked to speak on, and that is to really stick to the question of the importance of borders and nation with regards to issues of um, wealth, the welfare state, and something that I'm pleased to say um, is becoming more and more important in recent years, and these are questions of inequality, social injustice, and the issue of the relationship between the different social classes. So this talk actually runs in two parallel frameworks, and they will meet at the end for the conclusions. Um, but it starts really with the issue of why do we need to think about justice within the boundaries of a given 
state or a nation state, and it ends with issues of how to think about social justice in the 21st century. That's not the right one. Okay. So just to make it very clear, I, I don't want to idealize the issue of thinking about justice within given borders. I just want to make it very clear that looking at the history of political associations, of states, um, that function as distributors, and that's something we shall be talking about, it is always talking about defined units that have borders. Someone is in, someone is out. And that is not a coincidental, in my view, a coincidental uh, state of affairs. It's not something that you can say, well, a lot of people actually say, well, you know, why don't we think in global terms? So what I want to say just in the beginning of this talk is that borders are important because they create a condition that is absolutely necessary for thinking about justice. So why are borders necessary? Um, it is actually an interesting phenomenon in my mind that uh, borders are important mostly in the democratic world. In a non-democratic world order, people used to create political units because of very many different reasons. And it was quite clear that you know if somebody marries somebody else, um, uh, or uh, you know buys a land or moves from one place to another, borders are changed. There was nothing natural or really democratic about the unit that has been governed by the king or the feudal. It was just a matter of power. But in the democratic world, we need reasons for creating political units. And power in itself is not enough. So what you see when you think about democracies um, in, uh, in the modern world, and it's a democratic and modern phenomena, is that they need some sort of rationality. Why are these people affiliated with the people who live here and those people affiliated with the people who live there. And this rationalization is important because the whole notion of being self-governing, I sort of hinted here to Berlin's notion of positive freedom, that we govern ourselves, immediately raises the issue of who is this self that is going to govern itself. I mean, we need some sort of a definition. I will shortly attend to the issue of a community of faith that correlates uh, to this uh, question of identity. But at this point, it's just important for me to say that while um, we need borders, functionally we need borders, there seems to be no universal principle of how to draw borders. I mean, it's hard to think. I mean, think about referendums, and there are referendums in certain parts of the world right now. Uh, people might say, well, let's have a referendum and see who belongs to whom. 
But that wouldn't work because to have a referendum, you have to decide who is asked this question, who is asking the question, and what is the question all about. And that already presupposes somebody defining something for some other people. So when you come to think about it, and I think this is quite a, an interesting fact, that borders will always be artificial. So A, they are important, and B, they are artificial. And by the way, this is not the only thing that is both artificial and important to us, and I think we should come to terms that this is um, part of the way we think about ourselves and our politics. And as you, say, as you see, um, the last point here is that borders, as I say, um, are something that is fabricated. There's nothing natural about them. I mean, people used to say, here there is a natural border, but it's probably somewhere that somebody decided to draw a border because there could be another mountain or another river or another place where a border could be drawn. Um, despite the fact that they are functional and not natural, they do create a feeling of a political system that is non-arbitrary. That the system has some sort of a rationale, there's some sort of a reason why this is England, this is France, this is Germany, this is Italy. And all of us who know a little bit about history, you don't need to know a lot about history, know it could have been different. And yet it is important. As I said, they are fictional, but they are important. <laughs> so, Nations, and I don't want to go here into the debate about what is a nation and how are nation created and whether Asians are modern or ancient. Nations are something that uh, we have acquainted before modern, uh, with before modern times. Nationalism as a way of rationalizing political unit um, is a rather modern term. And maybe the most uh, wonderful expression of this is this, you know, Italian phrase that repeated itself in, Ital in Italian history after the many unifications that Italy knew. You know, we have made Italy. Now we must make Italians. So just I put here for a second the map of Italy just to show you that, and I could have put here the map of France, uh, Spain, many other countries in Europe, and certainly most of the countries in Africa and in other parts of the world. I mean, the, the boundaries keep on changing. At some point, they're being fixed, and that is seen as Italy. And the people who live there are Italian, though you know the map could have been changed in different ways, and Italy could have lose parts of it, or maybe got some other parts to become part of Italy. This is just to show how arbitrary the decision is, where we stop, and what we define as in and out. So why is it important for us to create this kind of a structure of a permanent, again, a permanent political unit? Partly because we would like to see political units as being more than just administrative. We would like to see political units as having a purpose, as being able to motivate people, as creating solidarity and community. I mean, 
If we want to say that political units can respond to the needs of justice, they need to motivate people. And I think one of the big issues that are still a mystery and are under-discussed in uh, debates about justice is not what should be done, but how can we motivate people to do what should be done? It's easy to say we need to do A, B, C, D. It's very difficult to find ways to motivate people to do A, B, C, D. And it is especially difficult because many of us, especially the political theorists among us, know that when we think about justice, we commonly think about individual as being self-interested. But then when we think about the political arrangements that could bring justice about, we want them to sacrifice quite a lot in order to be able to offer other people something they don't have. The social contract is not all about me. It's about all of us, and it's about some people giving up something they have for the benefit of others. So this tension between the self-interested agent who wants to just promote their own self-interest and the community is inherited in what we say and think and do um, when we uh, deal with social justice or social injustice. So states are functional and have been very functional, one should say, in creating this image of a community of faith, in creating this image of we are, there is a we there, and we are together. And that is why we should be doing something for the benefits of the lower classes or the weakest members of society. And I'm saying it was functional because it is hard to see how a welfare state could have existed without the state. So this is a little bit an argument about the importance of states. I know in the last uh, few decades, states are not highly regarded, and certainly politicians are not very well, um, are not highly regarded. Um, but the function of redistribution uh, is something that modern states have been doing. Actually, uh, at least in the beginning, quite efficiently. So we are looking at structures, political structures, that motivate a certain policy and that motivate individuals to participate in a process that most of us would say is not a natural process. It's a process of sharing. It's a process of caring about other people because they are part of a certain political unit. So um, to wrap up this little introduction um, that I'll come back to at the end, as I said, is just to say that the significance of nationalism, in my mind, for the modern state was the creation of this illusion of togetherness, of purposefulness, of, you know, here we are all together in order to do something that is more important than each of us separately. And interestingly enough, it works, right? It motivates people. It even sometimes motivates people even too much. We would say we would like states not to motivate people to do things we think are immoral or unnecessary. Um, but it has a motivating power, maybe similar only to a force that is less 
uh, or maybe is coming back to be a powerful uh, force in human life, which is religion. You know, there are features that are similar to religion in the nation state that helps motivate individuals to do things that are over and beyond their own specific uh, position. Um, you can also think about it uh, in the terminology of the game theory. Uh, it's not totally irrational to think that we are all working together for the benefit of each other only if we can see ourselves as a group that is going to work together for quite a lengthy period of time. I mean, if we are together working for the benefit of a particular issue right now, and tomorrow there's going to be here in this room a totally different group, the way we will treat each other, as we all know, is very different than if it is the same group who's going to do several tasks together. So what creates um, this feeling that we are a community, but not just in any community, that we are a community of faith, that we are working together because something is happening to all of us together? The first thing is that there is a shared notion of risk. And by the way, again, an issue that has been maybe undermined in political theory, but risk is absolutely essential for people to decide to work together. If there are no risks, like if there is no scarcity, there's no debate about justice. If there is no risk, there's no reason why people will come together and create political units. Uh, risk is a very important uh, issue that brings us to think about ourselves and our interests in a different way. So every theorist of, a social, of the social contract would start by describing how risky it would be if there was no social contract. And risk is an essential issue. And therefore, by the way, states do like to highlight risks and make them a way to recruit people. And maybe this is part uh, of the modern reality of state being um, very keen to recruit people, whether it is for the army or for social justice, that they have to highlight the shared risk. There must be a scheme also of benefits. I mean, people don't get together and do things together unless they get something out of it. Again, going to the position that most agents, at least in political theory, but probably also in reality, have a strong sense of self-interestedness. So they want to get something from what they're doing together. And that these individuals, while they are together, create some ways of sharing risks and sharing opportunities. So that's basically, if you have these things, you have already created some sort of a community that would like to act together in order to benefit from this cooperation. That's just Eleanor Roosevelt. And, you know, this is the terminology that I'm here trying to emphasize. Um, it's either all of us are going to die together, a little bit of an exaggeration, but as I said, states do like to exaggerate in order to recruit people. 
or we're going to learn to live together. So uh, these kinds of uh, sentences are very uh, characteristic of the way states recruit people to do things together, and it's all of us are in it together, something that I think is very strong in forming, as I said, both the good part and the bad part of the modern state. Um, so I want to take this very brief description and ask how did it, how did this process of creating political units that are communities of faith, how did it manage to create for a while, actually a very brief while, I think now in historical perspective we should say a brief while, um, the notion of the welfare state. And the basic claim I would like to make is that the welfare state could have been created because for a time, for a particularly, particular time in history, states managed to create something that I call a cross-class coalition. A system that recruited people from different classes to work together under the assumption that if they would be working together, all of them will benefit. And that without being able to recruit members of different classes to work together, uh, the likelihood of creating a distributive system is very small. So it is an important thing that it's on, not only one class that benefits, but all of them, ben or all individuals, members of different classes, benefit from this collaboration. Um, it is also very important to note that people who are, sorry, that people who are in this uh, process don't necessarily um, gain the same kind of gains by being partners to this collaboration. So this is just a, just a brief uh, reminder of where we are. We started with the notion of the modern nation state. We talked a little bit about the community of faith. And what I want now um, to turn to is this creation of the cross-class co cross coalition, why it emerged, and why I think it fell apart, and just the two last moments saying something about where we're going. And I'll just keep it, I'll just say very briefly that the way I use the notion of class is a group of individuals who have actually a similar evaluation of the risks and opportunities. It's a little bit of a nuanced uh, definition of class, but it allows you to assume that members of the different classes have different views of what's the best social arrangement for them. But if you belong to the same class and you would be looking at arrangements that would um, allow you to promote your interest or reduce your risks, then you would be also thinking about similar political arrangements. But this is just a footnote. So here is the major claim I want to make. That the welfare state created by means we have discussed briefly, a way of drawing in the different classes to a system that benefited members of all classes, as I said, 
not in the same way, in different ways. Nevertheless, it was good enough to recruit all of them to be members and to share uh, a policy of redistribution. So first of all, I think it's the notion that I started uh, my description of the cross-class coalition with of collective risk. It's the ability to uh, create a very strong fear, and politics is always motivated in one way or another by fear, of risk-taking. You know, those of you who are political theorists who know uh, the theory of John Rawls know this concept of risk-avert. Rawls thinks that we're not taking or not ready to take risks at all. I don't think that's true, but I think that most of us, and this is very rational, would like to reduce risks if we just can. So the first thing that um, the welfare state did, or the nation state as a welfare state did, was to try and meet this need to reduce the risks we're facing. And then the mirror image of this is the mutual gains. I mean, if you, as I said, there is a price to be in a community. There's always something you are paying for becoming a member, so you should gain something. And again, one should say that there was a lot to gain for members of different classes, not the same gain as I said, but there is something that each and every member could have gained. There are two other factors that I think are very important. First of all, um, the group of what I call the protected class, the people who don't think anything can harm their status, was rather limited um, in the area of uh, the post-World Wars, which I'm talking about, partly because of the war, partly because of the loss of personal capital, partly because uh, people weren't sure how things are going to develop uh, in Europe uh, in these years. And people felt a need to rely on the state. Uh, on the other hand, members of what I call the vulnerable classes obviously had then and have now an interest in creating a safety net for themselves. So there was a moment that probably was quite unique that being vulnerable can thinking about your life in the terms of I could be, no matter where I stand, in the very lower class or the very upper class, I could be facing a situation where I need protection and I can't offer it myself, for myself, created a desire to rely on institutional arrangements. So as I said, this is very much something that happened, as we also know the history of the welfare state, in the post-war, World War era, with uh, really the development of a strong sense of shared vulnerability. And if you think about the way the welfare state um, developed and how closely it is related to wars, 
to recruiting people to fight for the collective, for compensating people for fighting, um, for trying to support people who fall through the net and are unable to fend for themselves, then you'll see that this, you can say, trauma of the world wars created a sense of readiness to accept the feeling that I could be also needing support. The other side of that uh, reality was a growing feeling, and now I think we can say a misunderstanding of the benefits of globalization. And the assumptions that things are just going to be forever better and better and better. The economies will grow, the middle class will grow, the future of the next generation will be better than it was in the past. I mean, there was a feeling of abundance of opportunity that I think was also very misguided, but for a while, I mean, our parents' generations probably was the kind of generation that assumed that their children will do much better. This is not a reality right now, but this period was particularly important because it's easier to share when you think there is a wide range of opportunities for you and your children than it is to share when you think that actually opportunities are shrinking. So this combination between shared vulnerability and open opportunities, I suggest, created the conditions that allow uh, the idea of the welfare state to develop. You remember this guy and the saying, uh, you know, the workers of the world should unite. You have nothing to lose but your chains. However, um, the welfare state and the modern state, not only the welfare state, but the modern state, created quite a lot of things people could lose, from citizenship to welfare rights. By the way, I, I love this poster because it's so, I mean, nobody would do something like this today, right? Everything is wrong about it. Uh, from the chimneys to the posture of the woman as a half nurse, half mummy, uh, to... Uh, really something that is so outdated that it's hard to think uh, that it is attractive. But this was a moment in history where people thought, well, you know, we gain something from being members. And this is a very strong assumption. Again, you don't need to gain the same thing. You don't, it's not about equality. It's about getting something that is important to you that is enough in order to keep you in the... Uh, partnership that is being created. And that, I think, was a really particular moment where people did gain something that, by the way, today they don't even value because they think it's so natural. Um, if, you, if you think about how unnatural or how new many of the services uh, the welfare state offers, it is quite astonishing. But Within, I don't know, 50 years, people started to assume that all of it is given. They have seen no virtue in getting uh, services like education or health. They thought that was natural. Generation before, their parents remembered it wasn't natural at all. There was a generation that just accepted it as a given. That's what you get from the state. This is actually what you deserve to get from the state. And therefore, 
it is something that is not really something um, you value. Again, another picture that I like because I think it's very telling. It's, you know, people don't remember it, but, you know, the distributing classes was a big thing. You know, suddenly the state took responsibility over things it didn't um, do before, and this was for many people a life changer. So, um, again, doesn't mean that these people made as much money as the wealthiest people in the society, but they were better off than they were beforehand, and there was something they couldn't gain, and there was somebody that was responsible to provide them with these goods, which is not something negligible for people who had no protection beforehand. So there was this exchange that may be hard to uh, describe in such a, a, a short time like I'm given here, but there was something that actually was attractive to uh, the different classes in the society and kept them together. Now at some point, and you can really argue when exactly it started uh, falling apart, but at some point, and I just took an arbitrary point, but I think all of you know that, the fall of the Berlin Wall, approximately about that time, approximately about Fukuyama writing the end of history, where people think everything is fine now, you know, it's good, democracy won, the West is, you know, winning, everything's going to go great, we're going to have more opportunities, we're going to, you know, we're actually creating a secure future for ourselves, that people started to take security as a given. It's no big risk, you know, Soviet Union is fading away, there's nothing that is sort of threatening us. So here we are. Uh, we can maybe think differently about the scheme of risk and opportunity that is facing our society. So this is where the undoing of the cross-class coalition starts. So first of all, as I said, there is an assumption that there is less risk. Uh, you can see how actually people are surprised now with the uh, issue with cream, how um, suddenly people say, oh, is Putin now recreating uh, this uh, cold or not so cold war? I mean, where is Russia? I mean, should be we be worried about it. Suddenly, you know, that was an issue. The best thing, the best way to, to see how unimportant it became, there are no spy movies about Russians for about, I don't know, 20 years. Now, maybe they will be coming back. But there was, you know, the era where every, I don't know, spooks or spies were about the Russians all over. Now it's about somebody else. Maybe the Chinese are coming or something. So people just changed their scheme of fears. And this was an important thing when they looked at the state, they saw something different because it was not that power that protected them from an evil force that was very near. It was in their backyard. So it sort of evaporated. Um, some members, especially the very powerful one, um, started believing actually that citizenship with taxation and sharing is a burden. They can be global. They can go all over the world. As I said earlier, there was, I think, a misinterpretation of the opportunities raised by globalism, but not for the very rich. The very rich and the very powerful and maybe also the very, very talented do have more opportunities and will have more opportunities because of globalism. But it was the middle classes, as we all now know, now it's uh, very common to comment on it, the middle classes 
we're starting to discover that globalization is not that great, that good jobs could be gone to India or to China or somewhere else, that it's their children who could be affected by what is happening. And they became more worried. So some people became less worried. Some people became more worried. This is a good reason to break a coalition. Um, the protected classes, and they are, as we now know, smaller and smaller. I think this notion of 1%, people used to think about elites, I think about it, larger than 1%. Uh, but now it's the 1% and the 99%. I'm not sure this is quite right, but it's a descriptive element that is important. The 1% were like, you know, their own, they can do it by themselves. If they have the war, they'll go somewhere else. If they need health, they'll pick the best doctor. They anyhow send their children to private schools. They don't need us, the state. But then there is all the rest. And the rest are worried because they can't do it on their own. And the vulnerable classes uh, suddenly understood that many of the opportunities they dreamed could be theirs are not going to be theirs. Somebody else are going to get, is going to get them. And they are actually left out. So the difference between the powerful and the power, people with power and without power grew, I think, tremendously in the last 20 um, or a bit more years and made it very difficult to keep the two groups uh, together. Now, you can say, what's the importance of the 1%? Well, the importance of the 1% is they probably pay 80% of the taxation. They have the political power to influence the system. So those are a very small group. If you don't keep them in, um, and most of you probably follow a little bit of French politics, what happened to Holland uh, with the raising taxes immediately, people, very prominent people in France say, oh, I'm going to leave. You know, Depardieu, I think, was the first one who said it, being, you know, though he was a symbol of, you know, French theater saying, I'm not going to live here anymore or because of taxation. This is something that could be properly, uh, uh, improper to say earlier, but this group of people say, okay, the world is my stage. I can go everywhere. I don't care what happened to other people around me. That's just a little cartoon that I thought was funny. Uh, you know, we have no scheme for you. You can go somewhere else, you can try it. By the way, one of the interesting things the middle class realized is that moving to affluent countries is not very easy. And generally, by the way, uh, according to uh, the, the World Bank, only 3% of the world are immigrants. And mostly are immigrants from poor country to wealthier countries. So if you were born in Britain or in France or, by the way, in Greece or in Spain, your likelihood, I mean, there are people who are immigrating and we see them, and especially in the big cities we see them, but they are a, fr a small fraction of, of the community. Most people live where they were born. They're going to die there, and their pension scheme is related to the place that they grew up in. And they have a vast interest in changing their community because nobody's going to get them and give them better life chances somewhere else, especially if they need help, if they're sick, if they're old, if they're needy. So what's the bad news? Uh, the bad news are, uh, the good news is that this is almost the last slide, but the bad news is that there are growing inequalities, and we all know that. Um, 
that most of the accumulated wealth from the recovery of uh, the crisis of 2008, but even before that, is going to the upper 1%, and actually some people say 001.1%, so it's sort of getting narrower and narrower at the top. The social mobility that was one of the big interests of the, of the welfare state is not really working. That education that was to become the great mobilizer um, is not working as well. People are more educated, that's true. Certainly we live in the most educated period in human history, but that doesn't mean that they get the kind of job they expected to get or the kind of income they expected to get. And actually we are facing a very deep education crisis of more and more people say, you know, I've done all the right things, I went to a good university, I got a profession, and I'm now working as a waiter or unemployed or just not being able to build up my home and my life. So the promise of education has been really undermined in recent years. Um, there's growing generational pessimism. As I said, most people now don't believe their children will do better than they did. They think their children will do hardly as good or maybe less good than they did. And obviously, uh, the aging problem and the pension crisis. So the needs are growing. And many more people are exposed to tremendous needs and don't know how to make ends meet. So this is probably the picture that is relevant to the 99%. Everybody, and this is really everybody from the 99%, could become part of the people that are really vulnerable because they have no means to support themselves. On the other end, the very, very small underhand, um, there is an increase in security. As I said, you know, um, you can always move somewhere else. You can always send the poor ones into the army. No one who is very affluent is now being recruited in, uh, into armies. Uh, you either go to university, you get a degree, you find a way not to do it. You send somebody else to fight for you, so you don't really have an interest in what is going on. The accumulation of wealth, again, something being widely discussed this day, of unprecedented wealth in the hands of the very few. And as I said, for this very small group, globalization is really a great opportunity. So the elites... I like what Marx thought. The elites have united. They found a way to work with each other. They actually uh, share a very, very thin layer of the world that is theirs. As I said, they ski together, they shop together, they do business together, they intermarry, they take care of themselves. But what happens to the rest? So... This is, I think, the biggest issue now. We, if we dev divide the world to the 1% and the 99%, as I said, the 1% are important because they have a lot of power. But in a democracy, the 99% must have also a lot of power. And the biggest question I think is going to face us in the near future is can the 99% create a coalition? and fight for their interests, because they do get now more in common than, let's say, 20 years ago. 
or maybe they do acknowledge more the limits of what they have accepted from the state or the range of risks open to them and the children, and therefore they should be thinking about how to do uh, things together and organized in a way that will secure at least partly uh, some sense of, some, not, not only a sense, some way to create social mobility, a more proportional distribution of power, uh, a better distribution of educational revenues, some security in the, in the job market. The job market is getting worse and worse. I just, I think two days ago, so here in, I think it was in The Guardian, front page, that people are now asking people who apply for jobs to uh, commit themselves to have a zero hour, I mean, to come an earlier, bef an earlier before they are, I mean, like you started, at, work starts at eight, you have to commit yourself to start at seven. And if you say no when they ask you, when you're just submitting your job application, you're out of the pool, and everybody's looking for jobs, so people are now can, can ask you know, really quite ridiculous uh, demands in order for you even to be considered um, to the job. And therefore, I think working conditions are, going, are not going, are actually deteriorating. And the question of how people are going to reorganize work and uh, make sure that they get the rights is a big question now. And it's changing dramatically fast. And I think we're not giving enough attention to that. We do give a lot of attention to the pension crisis without providing many solutions. So all this for me amounts to two things. A, the one institution, and here we go back to the beginning of the talk, um, that can really change the situation is the state. I mean, everybody said the state is back after the 208 crisis when the state saved the banks. I mean, people thought the banks and the global cooperation, they are... You know, they are ruling the world. The moment there was a crisis, they called the state back in. I think the state is back. But what are we going to do with it? And the question is, again, of whether we can organize politically. Um, I think when you look at, uh, for, for example, uh, many of the demonstrations that were in Israel but were across the, uh, the world uh, calling for more social justice, you see something that is very interesting. The demands are very, uh, or the, the pain is very clear, but the solutions and the political organizations of these groups are very limited. So we have an age that complains. I don't see that we have an age that offers a lot of political uh, solutions to this debate, and as I said, it is a political issue. So what are the promises and risks that we are facing? Um, how can we recreate a trust in ourselves and in the state in order to do something to change the present reality? And again, I don't believe that without a state, a major change can happen. And in this respect, globalization is sort of a, a, a temptation. People say, oh, don't worry about the state. Let's change the world. Let's start with the state, I think, because I think uh, it is essential to change political institutions that are nearer to us. 
Um, I think we should be very clear about the risks that we are facing. And again, it's the 99%. So not only the lower classes. As I said, everyone can now belong to each group of the 99%. And being aware of that and understanding the risks and the social opportunities is something that is very important. I mean, if people are not realistic about the risks they are facing, they're not going to offer uh, the right uh, solutions. Creating a coalition, because no one can do it on their own. Maybe the 1% can do it on their own. They are powerful enough, but they need to be balanced by a group that is now the majority. <coughs> and we need to recreate some sort of notion of solidarity and readiness um, to to give up also some things in order to create more justice. It's not going to be just getting more and more and more for everyone. Somebody's going to give up something in order to create uh, less inequalities. I'm not talking about equality. Forget about it. This is far from where we are. But I'm just talking about less inequality. And you know, if, if we are going to create a difference, uh, it's about sharing, limiting maybe some things that people wish to have, maybe becoming more realistic about what we can get, what we can achieve, and what we owe um, to others. So just the last one. I don't think the, world, the workers of the world are going to unite. They have very few reasons to do it. But I think there are very many reasons to try and organize um, in order to recreate within their states uh, a cross-class coalition and to improve uh, their conditions and defend their future. And that, I think, is going to be the question of the next generation or the next um, few years, is whether this is possible uh, really to turn from a slogan uh, to reality. Thank you very much. Well, thank you very much. There's any number of uh, issues that that gives r uh, rise to. Um, I'll desist from bringing up my own and just um, turn it over to you. Um, please indicate if you've got a question for Professor Tamir. Yes, the gentleman with the cap. Just to, just wait and um, perhaps say who you are. There's a microphone heading your way. Thank you. Um, I don't think there can anything be resolved if you keep using terms like elite and top 1%. This defines absolutely nothing and means nothing to anyone. It's just a, a, a random uh, collection of whatever anyone particularly thinks of. I think you've got to start targeting who this top 1% actually are, how to classify them, what their objectives are, and start working forward like that. I mean, it's very obvious. And also, you said that the, uh, the elite have just started to combine and unite, when in actual fact, history has shown us that the elite have always been in that situation, and there's no difference between the past and now. It's still the same people. Thank you. Well, obviously the 1% is arbitrary. You can say the 1 and 0.3%. I mean, the question is really, and I agree with you, this is not my terminology, the 1% and 99%. I'm, I'm using a terminology that is now widely spread. I think the terminology is, or better terminology is between 
the protected and the vulnerables. And the protected would be the people who really think, and I think there are few, but there are significant individuals who, that they don't need any kind of protection from the state. That everything that the state does to them is actually reduce their opportunities, ask them to, um, you know, uh, produce more resources for people. That, I'm saying, I'll, I'll, I'll take the other question. Uh, uh, who, you know, they don't care about. So it's really the, this, the way, I think, to think about uh, the big difference between groups is if you try to imagine to yourself what would happen to you or to your children, could you imagine uh, yourself or your children being homeless, unemployed, unprotected, uh, sick but not getting any um, health care? The number of people who say yes to this, whether they're 99 or 89 or 92% is less important to me, the number of people who say yes now is growing because more people now believe that they are exposed. And this is, I think, where we should draw the border between those who are feeling exposed and probably are exposed and those who can say, oh, well, you know, I can't contribute most of my wealth because I know my children have enough and their children will have enough and we're all fine. Did you just want to quickly follow up with something? Just, just quickly. Uh, again, the protected is not uh, a defined term. It has to be defined. If you don't understand who uh, is trying to enforce poverty on the world, how are we ever going to com- compete against it? I mean, it's, I recommend uh, uh, more analysis on who is actually doing this, what their philosophy is, and particularly their religion, be it Jewish, Catholic, or Christian, who have nothing to gain from a, a strong, healthy society. They have everything to lose, of course. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Right. Um, yes, this lady down here. Um, I was wondering hey, hey, wait, wait, wait. <laughs> I was wondering if you could talk about uh, migrant domestic workers and how this would fit into your... Because um, I know you acknowledge that there is a, great, a large migration coming from developing countries to develop countries, and I think that that plays a big role into the conclusions that you came up with, and so acknowledging the kind of impact, because migration is on the rise, especially for migrant workers, and the kind of impact that has for your analysis. And um, along with that, I know you suggested that we need to be looking to the state for the solution, but insofar as the state is only interested in protecting its interests, and the state is going to be closing borders, um, artificial or not, um, should we perhaps be more critical about the role of the state rather than saying the state is the solution, especially with regards to helping the have-nots? Well, that's a very good question. I think that uh, there's always this dilemma where, as I said, where you draw borders and you make preferences, somebody's left out. It's not a question that you can say, okay, we're four states, but we're also going to... um, you know, be promoting open borders, everything uh, is shared across borders because then borders would stop losing their meaning. Um, and it, it, is a, it is always a dilemma that, you know, you can um, ask yourself w- what amount of things you deserve or you would like to grant members of your own communities and what you would like to do over borders. It's uh, not the case that if you have... Uh, a state that is, let's say, a state that is absolutely just to its citizens could also be involved in matters of social global justice. 
But there will always be a difference. I don't want to uh, avoid the question like saying, oh, well, it will be just will, because then I won't be giving you an honest answer. I think, yes, uh, one of the prices we pay for, being, uh, for creating communities or creating families or creating friendships or creating whatever kind of framework of caring uh, that we can create is that somebody is left out. And this is not uh, something that, that could absolutely be avoided. However, I think the price of not creating these kinds of frameworks is leaving so many people, even within, regardless of whether, where they are, without protection, that you choose uh, between two kinds of systems that are not, I would say, perfect. And immigrant workers, you're right, and you can see it now also in politics all over Europe, um, uh, are challenging these systems. And uh, one of the last slides that I was maybe rushing to too much was saying how do you create community without creating xenophobia and how um, you balance the need or the desire to create a community that is relatively, as I said, stable and caring and ongoing and also knowing to answer the needs of others. And it will remain, I think, Honestly, an unopen and an unclosed uh, question. There will not be um, clear answers to how far you go to open yourself up to immigrations, to people who come in, to uh, guest workers, uh, to other communities, and how far uh, you close your yourself and deal with what you would call your problems. Uh, this is not an. Uh, there is not a scheme. It's like the, you know, it's like the 99% and the 1%. It's not that you should be 90% here and 1%, 10% there. Like everything else we do in life, we're trying to find a balance. I just think that the, the price of not create, of sort of being so uh, uncommitted to uh, the welfare of your fellow countrymen or country fellows, um, is so enormous that we see now uh, so many more people exposed than they were before that uh, it's time to say, well, it's not a bad idea to start where you can make a real difference, and that's uh, a good first step. It's not ideal, it's not global, but it's not, uh, but I think it's desirable. Okay. Yep, yeah, um, the gentleman with the beard. And if you could just say who you are and where you're from as well. I've, I've let that slip a bit. Uh, <clears throat> I am uh, LSE student studying sociology. Uh, I was wondering, you're connecting the nation and nationalism with uh, the state uh, in the creation of a community of fate. Um, and uh, what I was wondering about is... Uh, if nation and nationalism uh, bind certain identities and nation and nationalism are developed uh, maybe by not, uh, it, they're not representative of the people living in a, in, a, in a community, but they're developed by maybe the elites or the 1%, then how is it possible to create solidarity without fostering xenophobia when you're living in a, in a community that has binded identities that are sometimes racialized? Well, I've, I've done a lot of work <laughs> specifically on this issue. Um, first of all, as I said, it's not easy. It's not a situation that I can tell you, well, you know, 
This is an easy question. It is naturally we can do both things together because naturally it's a big struggle to balance. And as I said, it's true uh, on all level of human attachment uh, that you are able to balance between those who take to be the people closest to you or the ones you care about and the others. Um, I do think that for a long period of time, uh, we managed to create units of solidarity that were not against the others, but were for uh, fellow nationals or fellow citizens. Um, but it will always be a struggle because this fear that I think an ability to see ourselves as a community that has a meaning and therefore we are ready to sacrifice something for it and we are ready to share within it uh, always has this uh, bleak side of, you know, of treating others differently. Uh, and, and I think it's a question, you know, when you weigh what's the right way for a state or for an individual to live their life, I think you weigh the, the two kinds of scenarios that I'm now exaggerating, right? The one uh, that you don't uh, want to endorse because it's totally closing in and the one that is totally not having anyone in particular to care about and trying to find somewhere in between. And I think this is a position that is not easily identifiable. It's not like, again, 50% of that and 50% of that, but it's a, you know, it's a kind of a commonsensical decision of where you should find yourself on this continuum between being committed to a community and being committed to global issues. And strangely enough, I would say real life suggests that very often the people who are actually committed on the local level are committed also on the global level. But this is just um, maybe just a way of saying that people who feel committed to social struggles are very often committed on all levels, not only on one. But that's not an argument, okay? I, I, I'm very clear about the fact that the argument is, yes, you have to find a balance, but this is for me something that, you know, I did my PhD with Sarah Zaberlin, and I think one of the biggest virtues of his theory was to make it very clear that if you take ideas to the logical conclusion, they become disastrous. If you ignore them, it's as much disastrous. So you have to, you know, all your life you're doing a balancing act, and that's what we do as moral individuals. We try to do the best to find the right place to be in. Okay. Um, yeah, could we have um, this gentleman here and then after, after him? That person with the jacket. One at a time. We'll start with you. <clears throat> Paul McGrail, Catholic Workers Group. <clears throat> I was wondering if you could say a few words about the power of images, particularly the fla a flag, national flag, uh, words, and uh, the media in, in their um, perhaps intentional, I wouldn't say conspiratorial, um, efforts to keep people's minds diverted from thinking seriously about some of the issues that, you know, within um, growing inequality and, um, you know, the 1%, 99%, the rest of it. What I'm thinking about, for instance, is, um, for instance, in, in America, uh, uh, in the 50s, the 
this, this, the, the external enemy was China after following the Korean War. And, that mig- and then it became Russia, you know, the great threat, as it were. So all the focus was on external threats there. Um, and then it became international, <clears throat> a threat from international Islam, jihadist Islam. Uh, perhaps now with the Ukraine, it's reverting back to, to Russia. I don't know. So that pe- so people weren't really co- allowed to concentrate on anything on this on the in the, the, the on class issues. In addition to that, you have in, that, in America the use of certain words, um, liberal liberals a dirty word. Um, socialism is, is attached to so quite often Mitt Romney being an example. European socialism. So people were people always sh- shied away from thinking in terms of anything other than a neoliberal capitalism. And lastly, the media. I mean, if, in that country, you have Fox News, you have uh, the Wall Street Journal. Here, you have the Red Tops. I'm just wondering if, if at the moment, people are, for many people, they can't understand why within Europe, there hasn't been, in, in Southern Europe, in Greece, in Italy, in Spain, there, there's been street protests, but there hasn't been anything organized. Uh, and in America, you speak to any American progressives, and they say, "How is it possible that the working, the people really at the bottom of the social, you know, people in the bottom of social strata, why they allow themselves to be exploited in, in such a way?" And I'm just wondering if you have some thoughts about the power of imagery and the media. Well, I think the the question is probably better than the answer. Um, we all know that the media plays an important role. We all know um, that there is an attempt, and I think uh, there's been a lot written about it, of how uh, not to think about part of the issues that I've raised here. But I think it's also changing. I think uh, more and more people, you know, inequality has been an issue for the socialist discussion group. When we were at Oxford together, uh, not very many people wanted to talk about inequality. I think it's uh, changing now, and more people, it's becoming a big issue. Um, It's interesting that economists now raise it, not uh, moral philosophers. They started thinking Inequality is actually bad for capitalism, which is a good news because, you know, that's part of what happened to the 99%. Some of them who are capitalists, and that's fine with me, um, understand that it even doesn't work for them because they are exposed, even though they're part of the game, so to speak, they're not going to gain from it or they're going to gain less. So partly people were... Uh, led not to think about these issues, I think partly things really changed. So it's not only that people were, oh, they just misunderstood the situation. There was a period of, the only misunderstanding, I think the most interesting misunderstanding, which actually, by the way, in some spheres keeps on going, is to assume that what happened in the past is going to happen in the future, something very natural to presuppose. But people used to think, oh, what happened after the two world wars? The growth, the um, you know, the, the growing markets, the growing opportunities, the benefits of... This is just going to go on and on and on and on forever. And they never thought about when or if it will stop. And now that it has sort of stopped, people are really surprised, but they are forced to think about it. So nothing would take off people's mind now 
the issue of inequality. And again, because as we all know historically, big changes are not created by the lower classes. It's the middle classes and the bourgeoisie that has to be affected, and they are affected now, so they are part of the power. The question is whether they will be able to join forces with others in order to make the difference, or will it just will remain kind of a fashionable complaint, you know? Oh, it's terrible now. Okay. Um, we've got uh, that bloke in the fourth row, and then after him, this, this woman here. Uh, hi, I'm an anthropologist here at LSE, and I was just wondering if you could talk, uh, as a former Israeli um, uh, member of parliament more specifically, about how successful you think Israel has been at fostering uh, the vision of the state that you've presented to us tonight. Thank you. I think Israel went exactly through the, through the process that I've described now. It started as a very successful welfare state, and it's today worse than America, or not worse, as bad as America. And it managed within 65 years to be all along the scale, from the very best to probably some of the worst. And partly it is, uh, I think, in Israel there are many other complications that could be added to this picture, um, but partly it is the breaking down of solidarity and the inability to recruit people to do things that was were sort of natural for them. So to be very clear, Israel was never an egalitarian society, but it was a welfare society. And it created the conditions for education, for health, for housing, that was actually um, very generous or very fair uh, for a few decades. And then when with the breaking down of solidarity, it has deteriorated, and like it was in the beginning, I think it was one of the least uh, unequal societies. It's now one of the worst, and it has done the whole range. And partly this is what motivates my thinking about how you convince people that they are part of the you know, 99% and whether they would like to create some sort of a different attitude to the welfare state. Um, and that's certainly not clear that it's going to happen in Israel or elsewhere. Yes, this woman at the front. Thank you. Um, you said earlier that uh, solidarity, solidarity grounded in a shared fate. I just wanted to clarify whether that meant you felt that religion was necessary to a community. And just say who you are. And oh, Finola. From? Nowhere. <laughs> really? Uh, <laughs> okay. Uh, no, I don't think religion is necessary. Religion's, religion is one of the ways that states create attachment and historical sort of uh, affiliation to the past, uh, but not only religion. There are other ways of doing that. It's functional in its way, but it's certainly not um, necessary or unavoidable. Okay, yes, this gentleman with the bid. Wait, 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 wait. Could I just, uh, well, two questions. One, one just, uh, whether you feel the collapse of the communist bloc will be an asset or a liability in terms of global social equality. There's one little question which, well, just because I did work for the Voice of Peace for some years, and on A.B. Nathan, the great peace campaign, I just wonder if you've ever heard of him and met him. Oh, of course, yes. He was a 
one of the first uh, peace activists in Israel, and he was very functional and very um, uh, influential in his days. Um, I didn't get a question about the communist uh, uh, party. I, see, I don't think this is an argument about communism. I think it's an argument about, it's a very uh, middle of the range argument about how individual evaluate the risks and opportunity and what they're ready to do for that. Whether it's, where to place it on the scale between libertarianism and uh, socialism, I think has a lot to do with what is now happening is understanding whether the free market works for individuals. And a lot of people who could have been libertarians several years ago, I think are turning around now, not because they become socialists, because they understand some of the limitations of the free market they didn't understand beforehand. And maybe this makes a little bit the debate on this continuum between libertarianism and socialism more, a little bit obsolete. It's a question now of what can really provide people with decent um, li with decent life prospects, and what can you do in order to ensure uh, the life of uh, the next generation? So it's a very pragmatic, I think, way of thinking, and it leads to an ideological conclusion, but it is more motivated by an analysis of how uh, the conditions that we're living in are working for us or against us rather than just with an ideological uh, framework. Yes, um, the gentleman with the tie. Thank you. Um, I'm from LSE. I'm studying philosophy. Uh, I think that your narrative of presenting the state as having its main function of sort of directing people with a shared fate towards a common goal and treating the sort of main problem that we have as being of the protected people or like the 1% of not sharing the same risks and goals as everyone else because of, I don't know, problems like globalization, giving them more freedom to like not care about it, seems to be a kind of dangerous, I wouldn't say illusion, but it's a sort of almost depressive construct to make people think that they have a shared fate with the rich and that the way of improving their conditions is to sort of plead for them to cooperate with them rather than, I don't know, getting rid of them and dismantling the state which is protecting their property and position. Why should the workers be trying to build a cross-class correlation with the rich instead of, I don't know, getting rid of them? Well, firstly, I don't really... Uh, I don't think you can build a theory about getting rid of anyone. Um, and you're not going to get... You know, the, the, the thing with percentage is very simple. You get rid of the highest 1% as the new 1% at the top. That's the way statistic works. Um, you're not going to get rid of them. And I think that at the end of the day, again, this is why I, maybe it's more of a pragmatic argument than an ideological argument. Um, I do think that you can, uh, that you, sh you see a society as being, um, as taking in, it's all 100% of citizens, wherever they are placed, and without collaboration of the powerful, no society has ever managed to create justice. I know it sounds, you know, uh, maybe uh, less uh, attractive than you would like it to be, and let's say, okay, let's get 
breed of the powerful, and you know, then we'll all be living in an egalitarian society. I think we'll get rid of this powerful. Some other powerful group will emerge. The, the real question is how you can really create good reasons for the powerful to cooperate. And again, this is why this is not an argument about equality. It's about an argument about collaboration, cooperation, and getting more justice and more equality than we right now have. And for me, that's a good beginning. You know, we'll get there. Next generation will think about the next step. I think we're very far from there. We're actually deteriorating. And when you are deteriorating, I think it's a good moment to stop and see how you can improve things rather than just dramatically get rid of a group of people, which I said I don't really approve of generally. If I can like, cal- clarify really quickly, I didn't mean just getting rid of no, the no, people I- themselves, but so much as the system, which is kind of guaranteeing their existence and kind of making them be there, rather than replacing them with a different 1%, kind of getting rid of power structures, which going to put them in place. So well, p- part of what I'm suggesting is exactly what you're saying, is restructuring the political system in a way that taxation changes and opportunity changes, and there is more free competition uh, for positions and opportunities, and that risks the future of the protected groups. But it, it you know, being realistic, uh, it is not going to replace the power structure in society dramatically, but it's going to give more opportunities. And I think we have known, the fact that we have known a period in our history, short history, very short history of the welfare state, that we could have created a different scheme of opportunities, I think is an encouraging thing to think about. Despite the different global changes, the changes, the, the structure of the opportunities and the job market and everything we experience right now. So for me, it is to go back to the days where people really believed in mobility and equal opportunity and the ability of people uh, to provide their children with a better future or, let's say, a stable future, okay? Not even a better future. If we can get that, I think it's a, our state of mind, which I think today is rather pessimistic globally, um, will be changing. And I think our future thought about collaboration may be even more generous than what I'm modestly now uh, trying to, to offer. Okay. And um, the lady at the back there. Uh, Linda Korsha. Um Yeah, there seems to be an element in here very much following on from that, that um, the, the, the need to reclaim the state. Um, because I look at international trade agreements and very, and very much at this moment the state is facilitating the, the, the power of the few and internationally as well. Um, so, yeah, if you, if you think back to, to like 45, 46, that people really did, uh, with the landslide, certainly here, with the landslide victory here, they, they did claim the state at the end of the war. Um, so... Yeah, that element needs uh, underlining, I think, this reclaiming of the state. I absolutely agree. I'm a, I'm a great believer in the state. I don't think that a lot of... Um, the, the, the revolutionizing the state of affairs right now can be done without recruiting the state in. And this is something that has its limitation, has its problems, but also I think is very essential for us in order to to really make a difference. And one should say that for, again, two, three decades, state did 
do quite a good redistributive jobs, redistributive processes that created jobs, that created opportunity, that created education. So we have seen a model of when and how it can work. We are now seeing a model of how it collapses, and this is why we have a good reason to you know, to reclaim the good ideas that we had and see how we can implement them in a changing uh, global environment. Just see if any, I, I'm just going to ask you a question, but is there anyone else who's urgently wanting to, because I don't want to cut across someone who's been waiting. There's disproportionate men mm-hmm. and women asking questions, so especially any non-men who might want to ask questions. I mean, do, do, do signal if you want to. Here's, here's my question. I mean, you, you say basically that we should deal with social risk by starting with the state. But, but here in Europe, the question immediately arises, which state? Um, you know, in Britain, should it be Scotland or Britain? I mean, you kind of alluded to that referendum. Yeah. Or should it be Britain or should it be the European Union? Now, all of that's a live issue. And to put it into a historical context, I mean, the origins of the welfare state, though in their mature form are in the, in the decades you referred to, they do go back much longer than that. And, and there's a parish version of welfare delivery yes. in 18th and 19th century Britain in which the parish is the relevant unit of sympathy. And the, the achievement of the welfare state itself is a kind of supersession of that very local set of affections to a national level. Why wouldn't it be appropriate to see that process continuing? If you're here in Britain, why wouldn't you want the European level to be the, the locus of these loyalties and this risk redistribution and, and maybe over time some larger uh, entity than that? I mean, it's, it's a moving thing, this set of borders. Right. There's nothing secret about that mm. border or this border. Um, but I think the, the, what I don't really want to suggest that any particular border, this is it. I mean, if it's without Welsh, it's not going to work, or with Welsh, it's working only if it's this word, that way. Um, but the terminology of creating a community that you care about uh, works, um, I think, has a dramatic role to play in this, in this discourse. And this is, by the way, why people do quarrel about borders, because they understand the importance of that. I don't think this dialogue can, and I said, unfortunately, this is really one of the most unfortunate things in political theory. You really don't have an answer to the question, where should the border be? Except, and then you say, okay, no, it's Britain, then it's Europe, then it's global, and then you lose it. So, unfortunately, we are all living in this um, very unsatisfied uh, theoretical situation that we have to work with what there is rather than hypothetically, you know, continue the argument. And it's not that this argument favors a particular state or a particular border. It favors understanding that we need to create political frameworks. And then the question, where would it, where would the border pass? Whether Lombardy would, you know, get rid of the rest of Italy or not, or whether the Welsh or the Scots will be in and out. This is a different political issue that I don't think this argument can answer. Actually, I don't think any political argument can, or theoretical argument can answer. This is really where we're all unfortunate, um, you know, victims of history and, and political powers that uh, weigh sometimes in 
favor of small communities and sometimes of large communities. But there is, not a, there is no way to answer this, your question just on the basis of theory saying, okay, I found the answer. If I would, you know, it would be really great, but I, I don't think I'm capable of answering it uh, this way. Thank you. So was there anyone else who wanted to ask a question last, last orders, as they say mm. in England? If not, l- let me just thank you very much, um, Yuli, for that you know, really thoughtful and stimulating talk. I mean, I think it's clear, it's clear to me at least, that it touches on issues of high political importance here in Britain and elsewhere in Europe and in many other parts of the world. And it was also striking to me that you, know, you started what seemed to me, with what seemed to me to be an ideologically orthodox assumption. I mean, the left has always thought the state was an ally, except for the anarchist left. <laughs> but the socialist left has always thought the state was an ally. You started with an orthodox proposition from the scholarship of welfare states that they were built by cross-class coalitions. There's a body of literature that suggests that was indeed important. And yet you've reached this somewhat heterodox conclusion that um, workers don't really have an interest in um, emphasising their common interests with other workers. And I think it's a lot of, there's a lot of food for thought in, in what you've presented to us today, and it, um, it's been very stimulating. Can I ask you again to join me in thanking our speaker, Professor Unicorn? <laughs> <laughs>